Well, hello and welcome back to Draycott Diaries. I'm absolutely delighted to introduce Robert Nerden to you. Robert, a journalist for over 25 years on broadsheet newspapers, including Guardian, Independent and The Telegraph, has recently written a book called Between Heaven and Earth, A Journey with My Grandfather. This is an extraordinary life story and also has some connections with the local area, so I know you'll enjoy hearing that. It just leaves me to say, Robert, a very, very warm welcome to Draycott Diaries. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great privilege to be here. So, Stanley James, my grandfather, born in 1869, died in 1951. In fact, we overlap by seven months. He was a writer and I grew up learning about this from my mother and her brothers and sisters. And he was always a slightly shadowy figure. No one talked about him very much, but I knew he'd published nine books. I knew he'd been to Canada and was a cowboy. And uh, having finished uh, formal journalism, I was um, in a position to actually do some more research and to dig around into his writings and to get cousins to dig out photographs and speeches of his and, and put it all together and see what came out. So this project grew and grew and so who were these the Jameses they they came from Monmouthshire before that they came from Pembrokeshire so the strong Welsh pedigree and congregational ministers non-conformist ministers and Stanley's father Daniel uh, worked in three London churches he was um, written up in the congregational yearbook as being a, a fiery Welsh preacher and Stanley was expected to, to follow him into the Congregational Church. But, oh no, he had other ideas and rebelled against this uh, map that was um, presented to him. Well, by his father? Yes, he was expected. So he, he, I think he followed two courses to become a Congregational Minister and chucked them both up, teaching jobs, acting, uh, which was not a success. So that takes us, well, in fact, he, he was at Whitgift School, Croydon, and he was given dinner money, but he, he spent it all on books of the radical writers that he chose to read. And he wrote poetry and he wrote essays in the school magazine and got prizes. So already the, the boat was rocking, if you like. So it takes us up to 1893 at the age of 23. And his younger brother, Norman, was going off to Canada, emigrating. And Stanley, for everything else having fallen through, all his courses and um, and jobs. So he just joined Norman and they went together. So, Robert, just tell us, so Stanley's brother went to Canada. What age was Stanley at, at this time when he went to join his brother in Canada? Well, they went together and he was 23 and they travelled across Canada to Calgary and they both got jobs on ranches as cowboys. And uh, he, he did this for about four or five years and he was a shepherd and a woodcutter and a bridge builder. I describe him in the book as a bit of a uh, 1890s hippie. And he says he was very lazy and didn't really join in. The, he, he wasn't, uh, unlike other cowboys, he wasn't there to make a lot of money. And what he did do when he was in on the ranch, he set himself up as local correspondent for the local newspaper. So he was sending in these reports about all the people he was working with. And I think 
some of those also want to describe as fake news, and he got himself into trouble. So Stanley was writing these um, reports of his exciting times in Canada. Would you say that this was his first foray himself into journalism? Was this travel writing in its early stages? Well, travel, I don't know that that genre was around very much then. You know, he was writing reports on the preoccupations of the ranchers. So irrigation was the big thing then, and bridge building and flooding in the winter, Uh, and also coyote hunting which was uh, all, the, all the cowboys were expected on Saturdays in the winter to gather and to go and uh, hunt coyotes. So he goes into great wow. uh, detail about that. On one occasion in 1897, when he delivered his report in person to the editor in Calgary, um, he was offered the job of deputy. So he, he took that on. He was a bit bored with being a cowboy. <laughs> so he, so he um, joined the staff. So even though we've got this sense that he was a a little bit of a maverick, clearly Mm. he was really good at what he did, wasn't he? I mean, even though he may have changed a little bit what the things he was doing, clearly anything he he put his mind to, he was very good at. Yes, he was very talented. And I I think, you know, he describes how he came out um, in 1893 as a sort of urban, not very fit sort of person, but all all the rigors of the ranch turned him into a very fit man and he liked they always liked the outdoor life on the calgary herald when he was deputy i think he he took over from the editor on on some occasions and he produced this wonderful supplement all about the klondike gold rush which i found in the archives of the museum in calgary so that was great then he wrote a report about the unscrupulous uh, recruitment methods of miners in alberta to to lure out british miners and then they and the miners sort of turned up in alberta there was no job for them so he wrote a very I mean, good piece of journalism critical of these practices and then the editor sacked him <laughs> so he was too near the truth on that one and so <laughs> without any money at all he just started walking um, 120, 130 miles south to Lethbridge, where Norman, his brother, was running a shop and got that. He had no money, so he had to walk uh, nonstop for all this time. He didn't stop because he was afraid of rattlesnakes. If he lay down, uh, he would be bitten by rattlesnakes. So he took no rest. He just kept walking. This is what he says in his autobiography. And I found <laughs> that the very track that he walked down And it was very, very moving to see, to actually literally follow in his footsteps. I shall never forget that. He got to Lethbridge, which is quite near the American border. And he helped Norman with the shop. And then he set up a branch venture selling tobacco and other items to the navvies on the Crow's Nest Pass Railway, which was (laughs) being built in Lethbridge. And then the railway theme continues when him and a, another mate who is a Canadian and lived in Toronto was homesick and wanted to get back to his family, but neither of them had much money. So they were hobos. They were tramps on the trains. For three weeks, it took them from Lethbridge to Toronto, 2,000 miles, and um, travelling under the, under the carriages and getting thrown off by the guards and those amazing adventures. Oh, there's plenty more adventures. Can I just say, Robert, at this point, when you set off on this journey, if I'm right, I mean, obviously you talked to both your mother and your your grandmother before you started this. I mean, at this stage, as Stanley has very much the feeling of, you know, a bit of a maverick, but a very 
a very driven and a, and a very good man, actually, because it sounds like, especially when he was helping his brother, he was um, he was clearly a kind man and very committed. Mm. He was like this all through his life. I think the next episode in, in his life, uh, still in North America, bears this out. He joined the American army to uh, as a private to fight the Spanish in the American-Spanish War, which was breaking out in Cuba and Puerto Rico. He ended up in Puerto Rico. But when he had his, uh, in the battle, he deliberately fired his bullets over the heads of the enemy so he wouldn't kill anybody. And this was, so you're talking about his idealism and being a good man. This is borne out by that, that he was future, uh, in the future, he was a pacifist. But this is the first time we see this, that he refused to kill anybody in battle. So the, the war only lasted 10 weeks and he fell very ill either with yellow fever or dysentery. I haven't been able to find out. He said he was five stone, but I find it hard to believe. I think that's just a bit of exaggeration there. Anyway, he was shipped back to a New York military hospital. And in 1899, with his payoff money, he brought his passage back to England. And there he joined his family. By then, his father, Daniel, was dying. Uh, and he, had, he was minister of a church in, in uh, Wimbledon. And um, Stanley just took over. No formal training and possibly no Christian belief. He was a very good preacher and they loved his sermons. He was talking about the Rockies and about life on the prairies. And around about this time, he met Jess, a beautiful woman whose family knew Clara. Uh, is, Clara is uh, Stanley's mother and the families knew each other. And whether it was set up by, by the mothers, I don't know. But all went well. The problem was that the the um, Healy's, Jess Healy, they lived in a Buckinghamshire village. And Stanley, after his Sunday duties were over, jumped on his bike, rode through the night to her Buckinghamshire village, which was Wing, to woo her. And <laughs> he did this over and over again, cycling through the night and chatting to policemen for arrest. And to cut a long story short, they became engaged and that another phase of his life started. He didn't have a job. So Clara, his mother, pulled a few strings. She had a background in amongst congregational ministers in uh, in Devon. And uh, he, he moved down to Tynmouth in Devon and became congregational minister there for five years. Children followed in quick succession, four children in five or six years. And um, it was a very happy time. Uh, he put a lot of energy into setting up local societies and groups. And it was a very probably the most peaceful time of his life. And then a man from Walthamstow Congregational Church, Trinity Church, was on holiday in Tynmouth with his family by the sea and uh, attended Stanley's church. And for two, two Sundays in a row, heard the sermons, was really impressed. And his church had no pastor at that time. So he was offered the job of minister of Trinity Church, Walthamstow, and he took it. A completely different uh, location, of course, to, to Tynmouth and a fast expanding suburb in northeast London. And the family moved up in 1906. And this was another point at which Stanley uh, started experimenting. So his actual physical adventures of the prairies and, and as a cowboy were over, of course. But he was moving into adventures of the mind. He was writing a lot. And he experimented with new theology, pacifism, women's emancipation, communism, socialism. All these things were heard from his pulpit. And the older traditional 
people in, in the congregation uh, didn't like that. Of course, pacifism in particular, 1914, mm. just, just as war broke out, Stanley had a two-week holiday with the family on the Essex coast, and he had to decide as a pacifist whether he would make this public in the pulpit. And, and he did. <laughs> this caused big reactions. I mean, he was in his congregation where women whose husbands and sons were fighting on the front and sacrificing their lives and, and the ministers advocating pacifism. It was a tricky situation and the deacon deacons of the church didn't like it. There was more scandal to follow. So can we just get, stop there a second, Robert, just reflect. So, so far mm. we've got the sense of this incredibly, um, well, I've got a bit of a Kind of really, I've got a really well. I know he's handsome because I've I've seen photographs of my very big magnifier. I've seen this handsome young lad. He's gone off to Canada. He's had these amazing adventures. He's walked for hundreds of miles, trying not to sit on snakes. He's come back. He's got. He's a huge romantic. He's been to visit Jess. He's wooed her by cycling through the night. He's now uh, happy. He's got his children. But it sounds to me like this a lot of restlessness in him. And from yeah. what you're telling us now, we're beginning to get a sense of a man, even though he's happy and he's got family and, and stuff like that. And as you said, he's been con quite um, contentious because of his beliefs in pacifism as the wars are about to rage. So how are you feeling about him at this stage? And moving forward, I think there was some surprises to you that you hadn't anticipated would that be true uh, absolutely uh, tiggy the research sent me off to places i just had not envisaged i mean i i could tell you how this all came about i did a just a idle google search for him on one occasion i put stanley james rockies and an extract from a book called the match girl and the heiress came up and on one and a half pages Stanley makes an entrance and this book is written by an American historian in it there's a paragraph about how he used the vestry of the church to seduce female congregants and I'd, I'd heard nothing about this um, from the family obviously I don't think anybody knew and this man this historian's source was another book which is called Dear Girl by a feminist writer from the 80s called Teal Thompson who had access to the letters and diaries of three women, all of whom knew Stanley and all of whom went to his church. And it turned out that, that he had liaisons with all three of them, liaisons in the widest sense of the word, and an affair, a sexual affair with one of them. And these episodes are all documented in the Women's Library of the London School of Economics. And these letters have been, and diaries, amazing documents. This was a complete shock to you, Robert, wasn't it? You, yeah. Because as I said, so far, any relatives who remember him sort of not necessarily painted him as a virtuous man. But with everything you've been telling us about the things that he preached, this sounds like, uh, like total hypocrisy, really. How did you feel about it? Well, I was shocked. I, I, I describe in the book, I, I do dramatise some of the research that, I, that I'm doing, and my mouth just fell open. I couldn't believe it. And so I was shocked. But the journalist in me took over. My grandfather, I was far enough away from my grandfather because I, there was only a seven-month overlap, so I don't remember him. So I'm able to be objective as well as subjective. And 
after the initial shock, the objectivity kicked in and my journalism hat went on. I thought, this is a really good story. This is going to change the nature of my book. And indeed it did. So I spent three weeks in the Women's Library of the LSE reading all these letters and diaries. And just in their own right, quite apart from the fact that they relate to my grandfather, they are, they are amazing reading. And one particularly revealing letter written by Minna, who, who had the affair with my grandfather, writing to her best friend Ruth about the seduction. That letter, amazingly, I found out just right at the end of, just before pressing the button on the book to have it published, I found out was in the Virago Book of Love Letters, uh, published in the early 1990s. And it's sandwiched between a letter uh, written to W.B. Yeats and another one written to Vita Sackville-Wass. So Minna, the nurse from Walthamstow, is in good company in this book. And I just got that into the book before it was published. (laughs) So the research went right up to the end. And so that was a little bit of a sort of a bodice ripper moment, wasn't it? But but it must have, I mean, I understand you put your journalism head on, but it must have suddenly made you look at the whole situation slightly differently. I wanted to ask you, was either his wife, well, no, obviously, I mean, sorry, he died in 51, didn't he? But were there any remaining relatives, i.e. your mother, his daughter, who were still around when you found out this information about his infidelity? Or has it literally gone to the grave with him? It's gone to the grave with him. All uh, This is in family histories. People say, if only I'd asked before they passed away. And it was exactly the same with me. My mother passed away and all her brothers and sisters, my uncles and aunts, were passed uh, passed away too. So I had no one directly to ask. And it seems none of my cousins had any inkling of this. So I was sort of pioneering this um, new view of Stanley. And... Um, but to be honest, I was I was quite proud of it as well like, <laughs> that I that I was breaking new ground and uh, it felt it felt good. Yeah. Um, I can understand that. I can because I think we all you know we all look back at our relatives and we kind of we're all hoping they're not just match sellers and that there's something really rather sort of glamorous. And actually, you don't want a relative who's icy, spicy, nicey. I think mm-hmm. to find out along the way that something went a bit saucy went, went on. I mean, the truth is, he was spouting one thing, wasn't he? And clearly, he was doing something other. So those people sitting in the congregation possibly had some justification to, to view him with suspicion. Yes, he was called a rotter. He was called a dipper, meaning he dipped in and out of different uh, movements. And uh, a real maverick and very, very changeable. Very, that was always shifting his perspective, and it was very hard to pin him down. But deeply exciting. But Robert, let's. He, in the end, am I right? He went on to have seven children. So the last one was born in 1915. So David was born in 1915. So when these affairs were going on, they all the all seven children were alive. Yeah. So the church was rocked by these scandals, not not least the pacifism. And in the end, the deacons um, asked him at the end of 1916, beginning of 17, to resign, which he did. He set up an alternative place of worship in Leytonstone and a hall used for whist drives in the week. And it was a it was a sort of communist Christianity that he tried to create. But unfortunately, that fell flat after a few months. And then we're up to 1917. Yeah, so I'm just going to just stop here because this is the bit where 
I'd like to do a bit of a reference here, which is that this is rather exciting because this has a connection, this next bit, if I'm right, with a village very close to where I'm sitting now. Because obviously we're doing this remotely via Zoom. You're in London, I should say, mm. and I, I'm here in Somerset. So lead us into this next passage, if you would. Yes, well, the, 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 this point, that Jess and the seven children left Leytonstone, Walthamstow, and went to live in Rodney Stoke. And they lived in a, in a white house at the back of the village, while Stanley continued to work at various pacifist organisations and editing a newspaper in London. And this was the, I think they were there for about four years. They were certainly there up until 1923. And he made occasional visits down there. But may I just ask you, Robert, why you think they came to Rodney Stoke? I wish I could, I wish I could, had an answer, Tiggy. It, it's one of those, <laughs> I think, not so much why they, so Jess was a country girl from, from Buckinghamshire and very much uh, at ease on the land and, and growing vegetables. She was a great gardener. So she might have been in Walthamstow under sufferance and longed to be back in the countryside. That might have been the drive. That's right. There was um, some, some family down here. And why was Stanley staying in London? Well, I think for work. He, he had to do some freelance journalism and um, then became editor of the Crusader. And he was doing three or four jobs at the same time. So he was just the only way to make ends meet in his eyes was to stay in London. I don't think it was ideal, but that's what happened. Like many things in the book, it's I've, I haven't been able to solve it. There's a bit of mystery hanging, but that's OK. <laughs> But tell us about Rodney Stoke, because, you know, I'm living here now, we Mm. have amenities, it's beautiful, etc, etc. But when Stanley moved Jess and the seven kids here, we're talking a very remote time. So how did they deal with that, Robert? Well, they were very poor. Stanley was freelance writing and um, they were reliant on his articles being accepted and uh, my mother told me in an anecdote how they used to wait for the post the kids used to wait for the postman to arrive and they used to crouch under the letterbox waiting for an envelope to come through and in that envelope they hoped there was a check so they were trying to make ends meet they were self-sufficiency farming that was the idea in the cottage there was no running water and they had to go and collect it from a spring across the other side of the field but they seem to have been incredibly happy. They were they were a very active family and they got up to all sorts of pranks uh, in the three or four years that they were there. And uh, my mother told me more than once about the, but they used to get up early in the morning in September and climb up to the top of the hill behind to collect the mushrooms before the gypsies got them. And, and some sometimes there were so many mushrooms, more than they could eat. They packed them up and sent them to West End restaurants. And I, they must have used the train, like the Strawberry Line train, I think it's called. In, is that right? It is, yeah. I mean, it, it stopped a few years ago now, but it, it definitely was the kind of life link between the outlining villages through, well, you know, everywhere from here, really, up to London and the mm. north. So I imagine it was. I mean, she she and the kids would have had to bundle them up on a horse and cart and take them to Draycott Station, I'm imagining. Sure, I, I think that would have been the, been the way, yes. And, and on, the, on the train theme, my oldest aunt, oldest of the family, Auntie Phyllis, 
had a, a, a scheme on when she'd been into Wells on the train. She, uh, as the train passed the right point, she pulled the communication cord uh, around about Rodney Stoke because there's no station there, is there? Yeah. There's West Westbury and there's Draycott. But anyway, so she pulled the communication cord. The train stopped. She opened the carriage door, jumped down onto the track, across across the fence, and ran home across the fields. I think she did. This was a regular sort of uh, activity for her. What else did they get up to? Well, there was this story. So uh, they had two or three bikes to use amongst seven children. So my uncle Bob, who was the second oldest of the children, devised this scheme one day where they, whereby they had all cycled to Western Supermare from Rodney Stoke. And the way they managed this, the seven of them, with only two or three bikes, maybe three bikes, was to divide into two groups. One, one group cycle ahead for a mile or so, get off the bike, throw the bikes into the ditch and carry on walking. And then the second group would catch, uh, catch up and find the bikes, jump on them, and so this shuttle system took them all the way to Western Supermare. Whereupon naughty Uncle Bob, who was full of practical jokes and pranks, got his spade and dug a great big pit in the beach at Western Supermare, covered it with long twigs and sticks, and then put newspaper. My mum went into great detail about this, but <laughs> newspaper on top of the sticks and then on top of the newspaper sand so that anybody passing by couldn't see that it was it was just not part of the beach and then the family retreated a few yards back onto onto a sand dune or something and, and waited for somebody to come along and fall into the into the pit which happened well that seems yeah. So they are their father's children, clearly, aren't ah, they? Ah, yes, yes. And one I, of the, and one yeah. of one of the one of the I just don't know whether it's related, but what, yeah. a younger boy, Uncle John, became an orthopedic surgeon. I don't know whether <laughs> it was out of guilt that somebody you know to have broken their leg by falling into the pit or not. I don't know. Well, you know, just come to I don't know how many miles it is from Rodney Stoke to Western Supermare, but that's going some and then they mm. would have had to do the reverse journey coming back at night. So, exactly. you know, but I, I'm imagining, Robert, at these times that, uh, so Stanley, we just need to reference him, don't we? Because this is what the book's about. Stanley's, meanwhile, working for the Crusader, which is a Catholic magazine up in Fleet Street. And we don't know how often he visited his, his wife and children who are running feral here in Rodney Stoke. But I have mm. this rather romantic picture in my head that he would have come down on the train every now and then, had a pint at the strawberry special, got on a horse and car, either come along Brangay Lane or along the top Wells Road, as we now know it, and come mm. and visit the family. But it's not documented, really, how often he came down here, is it? No, he just says in his autobiography, I would like to have got down more often, but work kept me kept me at home I, he interestingly in a in an essay in the crusader uh, he he wrote about wedmore and uh, wrote an essay about the carving and the pulpit there so he drew on the local scene to uh, as inspiration in some of his some of his pieces so the family stayed here uh, stayed uh, in rodney stoke till i think 1923 and then they moved to hampshire and then am i right he well, I say he, he was working on a Catholic magazine. Had he turned, because he turned to Catholicism, had he turned to Catholicism by then? 
Well, the the Crusader, while probably having Catholic sympathies, was actually a pacifist paper. It was uh, non-denominational. But all the time he was, if you read his articles, you can see he's examining Catholicism. And in, in July 1923, yes, he converted to Catholicism. And picture of Lenin on his office wall came down and the big, big change, the last big change in his life mm-hmm. uh, took place. Well, it sounds like he he never really stuck at things for very long. He was always kind of, it sounds like he was almost like what we would call in these days, a bit of a sort of, you know, a a bit of a junkie for excitement, really, that he never, that he was always going on to the next thing. Because I know when we talked, when we met before we did this, he was saying that he rarely kept a job for a very long time. You know, normally Mm. there was parting of ways. Yes, and uh, on the Crusader, he he um, recruited um, some some big names: Jerome K. Jerome, who wrote Three Men in a Boat; Bernard Shaw; Sylvia Pankhurst wrote for him. He he recruited them, and so that that was no mean achievement. But at these fiery editorial conferences uh, uh, just off Fleet Street, he fell out with them one by one on ideological grounds, and they refused to write for him anymore. So eventually he was sacked from the Crusader. So yeah, what you say is right. He, he didn't stick to anything, but perhaps that was a reason for falling through the back door of Catholicism, if you like. It's sort of um, the last uh, experiment. And it's the one that stayed with him until his death in 1951. Robert, I'd like to ask you just before we bring this to an end. I mean, this is such... A massive, massive story. I mean, we, we've only just, we've hardly done it justice today in, in just the highlights, or shall we say some of the kind of poignant, some of the most poignant parts of the book. But there are so many more other massive stories within the book. What ha- but I'd like to ask you before we tell people how they can get hold of a copy, how has it left you feeling? Because as I said right at the beginning, you set off on this journey really to do some research with possibly some more ideal kind of pictures in your mind of your grandfather, he turned out to be all these extreme things, including, well, you know, we've been through some of them here, socialists, later life Catholicism, passivism. Um, we found out that he had some affairs which seemed to completely counterbalance what he was preaching in the pulpit. Mm. How do you feel about him today? I mean, you've done a lot of talks, which we'll also um, mention at the end. But you've talked about him a lot. You've done a lot of journalist pieces. You, there's a, rather excitingly, there's a company who are looking to do a film of his life. That's all dramatic and lovely. But I'm asking you, really, one-to-one, mm. how, do, how do you feel about him right at the end of this process? Um, uh, divided. Uh, on the one hand, I discovered that uh, this other side to him that I, I had no idea about but also quite proud of his relentless search for meaning and truth, taken to right through for year after year, because he was 53 when he converted to Catholicism. So the search went on for a long, long time. And he was a very kind man and uh, compassionate, but also very egocentric. My mother said to me once, you're so like my father. And this was years ago before I'd even encountered any of this. And I, at the time, I thought, oh, that sounds great as a compliment, but I'm not completely sure now whether what, what she was meaning. But anyway, as you said yourself, it's good to have a maverick in one's family rather than somebody who's um, 
just living a, a normal, unremarkable life. So we haven't talked much about his writing, but he, he, he wrote beautifully. He wrote a novel, which is in the British Library. Uh, he wrote poetry, cowboy poetry. He wrote plays, farces. And so there was this other side to him. He, he was a very, very good writer. So how do I feel about him? Very different person to when I sat down three years ago to start writing this book, but far more interesting, actually, and quite proud that he is my grandfather. I think he sounds a fascinating man. I think he sounds a fascinating I have to, uh, you know, as I'm uh, on the borderline feminism line that I walk, I, I was challenged when I was researching the bits about the letters, but hey-ho, we've all got skeletons in our cupboards. And as you said, it kind of all makes us more rounded individuals. I think, Robert, I've covered what I can do in, in a short podcast because I know there is so much more that we would like to do. But may I thank you from the bottom of my heart for giving us the time today because I know you're a really busy man. And I know people will obviously be interested in Stanley, but obviously particularly the, the bit resounding around um, Rodney Stokes. So warmest wishes when lockdown is over I shall look forward to meeting you face to face again and Robert Nerden author thank you very much indeed thank you very much Tiggy it's been great fun I really enjoyed it and um, meeting you again online and um, again face to face when soon I will be coming back down to Somerset so it's it's been great thanks so much for your time Robert, thank you so much. That was absolutely fascinating. And I know all of our listeners will want to know more about Stanley James and his antics. So you can get hold of the book on Amazon. It's called Between Heaven and Earth, A Journey with My Grandfather. The author obviously is Robert Nerden. Robert would be very happy to talk to groups by Zoom or face-to-face if you wanted to invite him. And he would love to know if anybody in the Rodney Stoke area has relatives that ever talked about the James family. They lived in Rodney Stoke from 1916 to 1923. You can get hold of Robert on his email, which is robertwriter, writer as in author, one word, robertwriter52 at yahoo.com. Thank you so much to Rob Elliott, who edited this programme, to my brother Hugh, who arranged the music. I was the voice, and my name is Tiggy Trethowen. Coming up on Draycott Diaries, March the 14th, we have our celebrity antiques roadshow expert coming to talk to us. So don't miss that. Until then, stay safe, and we'll see you soon. (laughs) 